In just two weeks, we'll covenant together as a church. On September 8th, we anticipate we'll have about 20 to 25 covenant members of Treasuring Christ Church. I am beyond excited about celebrating that day. Uh, and, and, and as we covenant together, what, what's more exciting is that then we are positioned to welcome more and more uh, people into Treasuring Christ Church every, every month. Uh, our, our typical rhythm after our Covenant Sundays, we'll have membership classes monthly and we'll plan to affirm uh, new members into the church on a monthly basis from that point on. It's, uh, it really is an exciting time to be a part of Treasuring Christ, to be a part of what God is doing here and establishing here in the heart of Ann Arbor, uh, a church uh, that exists to multiply disciples uh, who delight in, declare, and display the gospel in all of life and for the good of our city, uh, including the campus at the center of it. Uh, so when we think about what we're doing here at Treasuring Christ, it's important for us to always come back uh, and ask ourselves, uh, are we aligning with God's word? Are we centered upon uh, and in line uh, with the word of God? Uh, there's a... <clears throat> A quote from a, from a pastor who uh, perhaps more than, than any other has helped me think about the significance uh, of the church. He's a pastor in D.C. Uh, right on Capitol Hill. His church uh, is fittingly called Capitol Hill Baptist Church. His name's Mark Dever. He says this, far too many Christians, uh, when they think about the church, the doctrine of the church is like a decoration on the front door of a building, he says. Uh, perhaps the decoration is pretty. Uh, Nice to look at. Perhaps it's not. But in the end, it's finally unimportant because it bears no weight. Yet nothing could be further from the truth. The doctrine of the church is of utmost importance. He says it's the most visible part of Christian theology. When we think about the church, who we are as the people of God, how we function together and how we function in our cities and in the world is the most visible part of Christian theology. It's vitally connected to every other part. So when we think about uh, here in two weeks when we covenant together as a church, we, we want to understand what, what we're doing and what God's design is for the church. Uh, as a, a matter of the typical rhythm here at Treasuring Christ, uh, as we uh, come together each week, what we will do is, is walk through books of the Bible uh, or large chunks of Scripture. This morning we find ourselves in between wrapping up a sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, uh, and, and next week we'll begin uh, Advent celebrating and reflecting on the coming of Christ. And we'll be walking through a series called Treasuring Christ in Isaiah, looking at glimpses of the coming of Christ uh, from the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament, which I'm really looking forward to and looking forward to the whole Advent season. Hands down, best time of the year. Uh, not only uh, because uh, of the smell of, of trees, uh, for some, I was just talking to someone this morning, not as pleasant, uh, the smell of pine, uh, but, um, but the smell of trees, the, the music, you know, get over it. You can listen to Christmas music. It's, it's here. They took a week away from us. Uh, for Christmas celebration this year. Uh, so I'm excited about uh, celebrating Advent, not just the whole season, but, but especially the opportunity to pause and to reflect on Christ. That's where we'll be next week. But this week, we're in 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 
through 16. When we, we look at this passage, I want us to see three things uh, related to God's design for the church. We'll talk about the character of the church, the identity of the church, and the confession of the church. So uh, let's, let's look back at verse 14. We just heard it read, but, but here again, consider these words that, that Paul writes to Timothy. Um, he says to Timothy, his, his associate, this kind of apostolic delegate who's at the church in Ephesus, uh, trying to get things in order, establish pastors, lead the church in a healthy way. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So Paul is, is writing to Timothy as I mentioned, who's at the church in Ephesus. The church in Ephesus uh, was dear to Paul's heart. Um, Paul was a church planner. Paul was, was the quintessential missionary. Uh, he wasn't the first missionary. We give Paul a lot of credit, but there's a lot of people that we don't even know their names uh, who were spread out from Jerusalem who went about sharing the gospel. I love just as a, as a reminder, sometimes we think, oh, it's only the big, these big name people in the Bible that they're like the ultra extra special missionaries. You know, I, I think we'll get to the kingdom of God uh, we'll get to heaven and we'll, we'll find out the people who are scattered from Jerusalem who don't have names uh, in the New Testament, but who are faithful to go and take the gospel with them as they went. But Paul um, <clears throat> comes to know Christ and, and God tells Paul that he's going to set him aside uh, to take the gospel uh, to the Gentiles, to the nations, out from Jerusalem uh, to, to the nations. And, and one of the churches that Paul established and one of the churches that was dear to Paul's heart was the church at Ephesus. This was a church that was in a city of great significance. It had great financial uh, significance, great uh, just cultural influence, great uh, spiritual and social influence. And, and there the gospel came. There, God moved in a powerful way and, and really turned upside down all that the city was about. There were, there were people who were silversmiths who were making uh, idols or little shrines for, uh, for the goddess uh, Artemis who is at the center of worship in, in Ephesus. And when the gospel came, the gospel had such an impact on the city that the, the silversmiths were going out of business because people were no longer going to the temple of Artemis to give their worship, but they were coming to the church to give their worship to Jesus. And it started a riot in the city. Um, and, and God was at work in a powerful way to establish this church. And what uh, Paul did, because he had to leave, uh, he sends one of his associates, Timothy, who worked alongside him, to go to the church at Ephesus to make sure it was established, that everything was in order, that there, uh, that there were pastors in place, that the church was, was strong and flourishing in the word of God and able uh, to, uh, to protect itself from false teaching and that they were caring for their own. And, and Paul addresses a number of issues. And so uh, the letter to 1 Timothy in some ways is different than a lot of Paul's other letters because Paul is writing here to another individual. Typically, Paul writes the reason that the, the letters in the New Testament are called Romans or Colossians or Ephesians is because it's Paul's letter to the church at Rome, to the church at Ephesus, to the church at Colossae. Well, here Paul writes to Timothy, uh, but in writing to Timothy, uh, we, we see that what Timothy is supposed to do is important for the whole church. So this really, as Paul addresses one person, he's addressing one person for the sake of the whole church. Uh, and that's exactly what we're going to see here. Paul's going to say, um, I may not be able to come to you. And if I'm delayed in coming to you, I, I want you to know this, 
the purpose of his writing here. So I've, I've written these things to you so that you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God. So that you might understand the character of the church. Do you ever recall uh, as a child, uh, perhaps, uh, maybe it was at the dinner table or uh, some other experience where uh, you said something and you kind of got that stern rebuke of, in this house, that's not how we do things, right? As long as you live under this roof, right? And you fill in the blank. And it's probably a bad memory. Uh, so I, I kind of hesitate to, to use this example. When I think back into my life, I, I was doing something I shouldn't have been doing or wanted to do something that probably wasn't the best. And, and I got the, well, if you're under this roof, right? Uh, this is how things are going to be. Well, God isn't an angry father who's telling us, you know, his way or the, or the highway, uh, as maybe we picture in our mind. But what God is saying is that in his household, He calls the shots. In his household, it matters what the character of the church looks like. Uh, He he is the master of the house. He is the father of the household. And and he is instructing his family, the children, in what it looks like to belong in the household of God. What is the character of the church? The character of the church is shaped by understanding that we are belong to the household of God. We'll, we'll talk in a little bit about some of the images of the church that Paul gives in this chapter. But, but here in, in verse 15, the first thing, the kind of primary point is that we are the household of God. If we're to understand God's design for the church, the place that we must begin is to understand that we are not our own. We are not out here carrying out our own strategy, doing our own thing, but we belong to God. Together would be the emphasis. Together we belong to God. Together we are the household of God. And since we don't belong to ourselves but to God, then our life together is defined by what he says. As it goes beyond the, the, the picture that he gives here, but in our, in our language, if you could think of it this way, God is the, the architect the general contractor, uh, he, is the, he is the builder, he's the site supervisor, he's the interior direct, decorator, he's the one who's building his house, laying the lines, laying the foundation, shaping who we are, building it up, remodeling, transforming us to be a people who belong to him. We are the household of God. And Paul says, I'm writing these things to you so that you'll know how to behave in the household of God, not just be on your best manners, uh, but how you, how you ought to live, how you ought to operate is what Paul is talking about. So, so this isn't just a, you know, a, a little slice of morality that Paul is giving here. He's giving a, an all-encompassing, comprehensive picture of what life in the church should look like. And he says that he's writing these things, which is really a reference to, in some ways, the totality of the letter. Uh, Paul is, is trying to instruct them throughout the letter on what a healthy church looks like, what the character of the church looks like. So when we look at 1 Timothy as a whole, what is it that Paul says uh, that should define the character of the church? What should be true of the church? So you, you didn't ask for this, but I'm going to give you a summary of all of 1 Timothy. That's for free this morning. Uh, that, that we can understand what the character of the church is that Paul is pressing. Consider this. He says, you can see the references here. We won't turn to them because of time. But Paul says the church should teach sound doctrine 
and commit itself to God's word. In fact, it's from God's word that sound doctrine comes. That what we believe should be shaped by what God says. The church should also be a people who proclaim that Jesus is the savior of sinners. Not just one, but all sinners. He is a savior of sinners. It says in, in 1 Corinthians 1.15, this, this is a trustworthy saying, Paul presses home. There are a few times throughout 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus where Paul used this phrase. This is a true and trustworthy saying. It's, it's of supreme importance to Paul. And he wants you to know this, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And when the church gathers together to pray, they should pray that God would save those who don't know Jesus. This should be true of the church. We should be a people who proclaim that Jesus is the Savior of sinners. We should be a people of prayer defined by praying. You know, in our, in our church, one of the things that we try to do uh, is to stop. When we, we have our time in, uh, in, in the beginning of our service to pray, we want to pray with some intentionality and focus and inviting our church to understand what's important. Not just praying for the events that we're doing, but praying for the work that God is doing among us and the work that God is doing through us. We, we want prayer in the church not to just fill the gaps so that people can transition off the stage and onto the stage. But we want prayer to be God's people coming into God's presence. We have a great king. What a joy to be in his presence and to offer up prayer to God. We should pray for those in authority, he says in chapter 2, for one another and for others to come to saving faith in Christ. The church, he says, starting in chapter 3, should be led by godly and qualified pastors. And the church should be served by godly and qualified deacons. These are the two offices of the church. We'll, we'll come back to this in, in a moment. But that the church is led by these godly and qualified pastors and served by godly and qualified deacons is vital to the health of the church. The church should be known for pursuing and growing in holiness. Paul, Paul writes all of this so that the church from sound doctrine would come holy living. Godly living. Godliness is, is living our lives with God at the center, with Him calling the shots, with Him defining who we are and what we do. And the church should be known for that. The church should be committed to, to pursuing that. It says in chapter 4 that we are to train ourselves for godliness. So uh, <clears throat> when we think about discipleship and we think about how we grow in the Christian life, this is something we'll press into later in the message but when you when you think about discipleship, you know, I think sometimes we envision, um, you know, like if you if you get on a, an elevator um, on the first floor, by the time you get to the third floor, when you get off, you're, you're the same person. It doesn't just happen in a moment. Right. Discipleship isn't just like, OK, I'm going to go into church, get in the elevator, go up a few notches. And when I get out, voila, all changed. Right. There's a training for godliness. There's a, a training and developing for godliness and growing to be more like Christ. And we ought to be defined by that pursuit individually and, and corporately. One of the things I ask myself regularly and, and Chris and I talk about together as pastors as we think about what we're preaching through and, and what we're doing as a church is, is it helping the church grow in godliness? Is this developing and cultivating greater and greater godliness in the lives of God's people? And then finally, the church, uh, it says in chapter 5, should, should care for the needy among them. 
Paul lays out a, a circumstance where there's a number of elderly uh, women who are widows who, who need to be cared for. And, and he gives great detail about how we are to care for those who are in need among us. Uh, both informally, individually, we, as we see needs, we're to try to meet them. Like you don't have to wait for the church to help somebody in the church. It doesn't have to be an official thing. We can see each other's needs and help one another. But also as a church, we, we want to, uh, to do things together that, that help meet the needs of those among us. This, Paul says, is a healthy church. This is the character of the church, what we are to be defined by. Um, there, there's a great quote by um, Charles Spurgeon, uh, who's known as the Prince of Preachers. It's a shame he preached in the late 1800s and early 1900s, so we don't have any Uh, audio recordings of Spurgeon, but he was a pastor in London and um, he was asked what makes for a healthy church. And and this this answer is one that uh, I read. This was a few weeks ago and has stuck in my mind since. He says, a healthy church, what would that look like? They are earnest, devoted, at peace, loving each other and striving together to do the master's work. Such a congregation is strong whether it is composed of a dozen or 500 members. Earnest, devoted, at peace, loving each other, striving together to do the master's work. This is the character of the church. This is what I pray we are as treasuring Christ. There's all kinds of things that we will do, all kinds of events and strategies that we'll try to take here or there to, to see people served and, and to, to present the gospel to people in our community and on campus. There's, there's all kinds of initiatives that we will take in a culture of discipleship and evangelism that we want to see developed in the life of our church. But we, we must never forget our calling to be a people who earnestly love God and love one another. And are committed to the work that God has called us to. And I love that, that reality. Like sometimes we feel like, man, church is this big thing. There's all these different things going on. When you boil it down, this is what the church is about. Loving God. Earnestly devoted to Him. Loving one another. Committed to God's work. Going wherever He calls us, whenever He calls us. Being willing to put our yes on the table and say, God, use me. That's the work that God has called us to do. Well, when I think about how to communicate who we are as a church and the character of our church uh, within our Membership Matters class, many of you have gone through this. uh, But we we like to say it this way. As a church, when we think about who we are at Treasuring Christ, we are confessional. We are Baptist, congregationally ruled, pastor led and deacon served. And that sounds really nice and packaged together. Let me, let me unpack this for you. I want, I want us to understand what the character of our church is and how that should shape what we think about ourselves as a church. When we say we're confessional, as a church, that means we, we take God's word as our final authority uh, in all things. And we join together in affirming a common statement of faith that, that helps us to understand the teaching of God's word on the core elements of the faith. Um, our, our statement of faith that we affirm together as a church um, is, is something that, that's important for shaping our identity and the life of our church. It's a, a common confession that allows us to share in mission. Um, and, and so we are confessional people. As a church, we stand with the churches throughout, age, throughout the ages and affirming the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, which have shaped the, the church. Um, and, and then we also take our statement of faith and is drawn from what's called the Baptist faith and message. 
And, and that leads us to the second point, that we are Baptist. We are affiliated with the Southern Baptist Convention, also known as the, the SBC. SBC is the, the largest Protestant denomination in North America. There are 45,000 plus churches and approximately 15 million believers uh, who make up the Southern Baptist Convention. Why are we Southern Baptist? <clears throat> we clearly aren't in the South, right? Um, so it's not geography. Uh, it's not about style. This isn't a Southern style of church. Um, I am from Arkansas, so you'll have to forgive me of that. Sometimes that might come out uh, in, uh, in the accent. Um, but, but the reason that we are affiliated and connected to the Southern Baptist Convention is because as a denomination, they are wholeheartedly, unapologetically committed to God's word. Committed to a belief in believer's baptism by immersion. And most importantly, I believe, is the cooperation amongst Southern Baptist churches for the sake of missions. Those 45,000 churches uh, will give in excess multiple millions uh, of dollars for the sake of advancing the gospel among the nations. Over almost 1,000 churches were planted in North America last year through the cooperation of Southern Baptists. I mentioned earlier 3,500 international missionaries on the mission field with full support because Southern Baptists cooperate together for the sake of global missions. We cooperate alongside those churches and desiring to see more and more churches started in North America and to the ends of the earth. We're also congregationally ruled. What does this mean? This means that we believe the entire church body has the final authority under God's word uh, in the matters of doctrine and discipline and, and, and caring for uh, what we believe and how we live as a church. The church uh, are those who affirm the pastors who are called to lead in the church. They affirm the, the ultimate direction of the church, trusting the leadership of the pastors uh, the, the reason that, that we value church membership and believe the church should be made up of believers is because it's ultimately a belief that, that the church is responsible. Who, who, should, who should be responsible ultimately for the church being faithful uh, to God's word and to the mission that God has called it to? Yes, God has entrusted pastors and you will call and affirm pastors to lead the church. But you are as the church. The church is responsible to be faithful to God's word. And faithful to the mission that God has called us to. So I expect as a church that you would hold any pastor to the task if their character doesn't match God's word. If their life doesn't reflect what God says. If, if our church becomes so insulated and isolated and internal focused. I, I would expect that you as the church would say, we've been called to a mission. A mission of making Christ known in our city and among the nations. Let's get to work, pastors. Let's get to work, church. The church bears this responsibility. We are congregationally ruled, but we are pastor-led. We believe that God has called pastors who are men qualified according to Scripture to lead and to shepherd the church. The role of pastor is to oversee, teach, and shepherd the church. Uh, we, we see in Scripture in 1 Timothy 2 and chapter 3 this, uh, these qualifications that are laid out in the Scriptures for what pastors or the term elder or overseer is often used uh, synonymously with one another. Uh, but, but pastors are called to, to oversee, to teach, and to shepherd or care for the church. 
When we covenant together, we'll be asking those initial covenant members to affirm myself and Chris as pastors of Treasuring Christ. And it will be our goal to call additional pastors uh, to, to lead uh, and to teach and to shepherd God's people. Some of those pastors we may call from, from outside the church to come to TCC to be a pastor here. But also we want to raise up pastors from within our church. Uh, who would be a part of helping uh, lead and shepherd the church. Some of those pastors will be vocational full-time. Some of them will be what we'll call lay pastors who work outside the church but exercise leadership and shepherding within the church. We're pastor-led. We're also deacon-served. We believe that God has called men and women qualified according to Scripture to serve in this role of deacon, or the the language that we will use, deacon or deaconess, uh, to carry out the ministry of the church. They, They help serving needs and assisting the pastors in carrying out the ministry of the church. This is God's design. And we see it in Philippians 1. Paul writes to the church at, at Philippi and he, he references the, the pastors, the elders, and the deacons of the church here in 1 Timothy. And before our verses, Paul lays out the qualifications for pastors and the qualifications for deacons. The deacons are called to serve and to carry out the ministry of the church. Our desire will be to identify deacons and deaconesses from within our church Uh, over this next year, in the spring especially, uh, who will serve in this capacity, that they will carry out these roles. It'll look like caring for financial needs in the church, benevolence requests of caring for the needs of members in our church. It it will look like helping uh, to to organize and um, carry out different aspects of our our outreach in the community. Uh, These roles of of deacons, it will look like helping with uh, with the Lord's Supper, administrating the, the Lord's Supper when we gather on a monthly basis to take the Lord's Supper. These roles are vital for the church. This is who we are as a church. This is the character of the church. So Paul lays out in verses 14 and 15 the character of the church, but he goes on uh, to, to press into the identity of the church. And he talks about the identity of the church through these images that that are used to, to talk about the church. We, we've already seen that the church is the household of God. We're not our own. We belong to God. We, we live not according to our own desires, but the desires of the Heavenly Father. We, we are not isolated, but we live together in the household. The, the other aspect of a household is that all the members have a part. All the members of the household play a role. And that role is important in, in the ultimate big picture of the household. So we are all part of God's family, all part of God's house. But when Paul says that we, he wants us to know how we ought to behave in the, in the household of God, he then goes on to further describe the church. What is the household of God? What is the church? Paul says the church is the church of the living God. And the church is the pillar and buttress of truth. The word <clears throat> church means assembly. It bears the idea of a gathering. Um, when we, we think about what the church is, it's a gathering of believers who have committed themselves to one another and to the Lord. It, it also bears this idea of being called out. Those who are a part of the church are called out of unbelief, out of the world, into Christ, into belief in Christ. And so we serve not just any God, but we serve a living and resurrected God. We sing about it this morning, our living hope. God is a living God and his people gather together in the name of the living God. He is at work among us and through us. 
I want you to think about how this informs our thinking. This should inform our thinking in at least two ways. One, uh, our weekly gathering. So someone asks you, where's your church? Where do you meet? You should no doubt say, well, we meet at Ball Elementary, 600 West Jefferson Street in Ann Arbor. That's, that's where we gather. But in a, in a bigger way, we know that the church isn't the building, right? The church is the, the people who gather in Christ's name to worship through song and the preaching of the word and the practice of baptism and the Lord's Supper. God is present with us wherever, but he is particularly present when his people gather. There's something special about Sunday morning for the believer. There's something special about gathering together with brothers and sisters in Christ in the presence of God to worship. Not just something special, but something essential, God says. We are the household of God, the church of the living God. God is uniquely present among us when we gather together. To, to speak of the church being the church of the living God is to speak of God's presence being among us. And particularly among us when we gather to worship. But also... This, this helps us think about our commitment to evangelism and discipleship. As we enter into the new year, we'll talk about this in the coming weeks, but we are, we are going to be putting a, a focus on, on our evangelism and our discipleship in, in the new year. <clears throat> and why do I say that this image helps us understand uh, our evangelism and discipleship? Well, Paul writes so that we would know how to behave in the church of the living God and what kind of lives would be fitting if we are indeed the dwelling place of God, if our lives personally and corporately are called to be a display of God in the world, then evangelism, discipleship are at the heart of who we are. If the, if the understanding of the church is the most visible aspect of our theology, of what we believe, then understanding God's design for the church should press us in our understanding of our evangelism and discipleship. Evangelism is making known the living God to those who are spiritually dead. It's making Christ known in all that we do. It's verbally proclaiming that Jesus died for sinners and rose from the dead, and anyone who would trust in him will be forgiven and have salvation in Christ's name. That's evangelism. We will see in verse 16 that the proclamation of Christ in the world is central to our confession. And discipleship is, is knowing and following God and helping others do the same. So it's, it's, not a, it's not a course, it's not a certificate that you get. I've been discipled, you know. Uh, it, it's a, uh, it's the, the life of a believer knowing and following God and helping others do the same. It's a, it's a commitment to cultivating spiritual growth in your own life and helping others pursue spiritual growth in theirs. So, so these two focuses, uh, foci, if you will, um, I don't know if that's the right way to say it, but it sounded better than focuses, um, <clears throat> of evangelism discipleship will be at the forefront of, of TCC in the coming year. We, we want to we foster a culture of this. Uh, not, not just initiative or program, but the culture, a part of who we are. Uh, so we'll, we'll be talking about discipleship relationships. Uh, discipleship relationships are believers committing to meet together to study God's word or, or some book for a period of time for the purpose of spiritual growth. This is at the heart of what discipleship looks like. It could be one-on-one. -on -one, it could be three or four people. It could be once a month. It could be once or twice a month. It could be every week, depending on your circumstances. But it's, 
It's a part of a culture of people committing to one another to to study God's word and to pursue one another's spiritual good. So when someone comes up to me at TCC and they say, hey, look, I really want to grow in my faith. I want to get further connected. What I would love to do is I would love to say, hey, see that guy back there? See that girl over there? I want to introduce you to them. I would love for you guys to to get together and have coffee, maybe a meal, and and begin to talk about what it would look like to to maybe read God's word together or or maybe walk through uh, a book that would help you grow. Uh, maybe you can get connected in that small group or, you know, there's these other opportunities. But, but how awesome would it be uh, that each of us could do that where we could say, hey, here's a, here's a relationship that's worth pursuing and investing in for the sake of their spiritual growth and for yours. I was just talking about this with somebody before the service. The Christian life produces the most joy, not merely when we know about God, but when it works itself out in our life. It's one thing to know about God. It's another thing to allow it to be worked out in your life and you seek the spiritual good of others. Whether it be in evangelism and them coming to know Christ or seeing another believer be built up in God's word. I just want to commend you. We have a resource over on the table called one-to-one Bible reading. Uh, Just a resource of helping you understand of how to get together with someone and read the Bible. Uh, not with you know, some elaborate uh, study beforehand, though there's some helpful tools to help you do that, but, a, but just a simple resource to help you along those lines. There are other tools, and we, we would commend others as well, but we, we want to put those resources in your hand and to equip the church to be disciple, um, to, to be committed to making disciples. We also will have two, two opportunities we'll call equip classes or, or equip courses. Starting in January or February, we're going to begin offering equip classes and eventually equip courses. So a class will be a one session, uh, two to three hour time where we dig into a topic, a discipleship focused topic. It may be related to men's or women's discipleship. It may be on some aspect of, of our theology, talking about sin, talking about uh, angels and demons, talking about... Um, you know, talking about salvation and the gospel. It, it may be focused on apologetics, how to answer questions about our faith, marriage and family, dating, sexuality, politics, race and racial reconciliation, how to study the Bible, prayer. All these different types of topics will be the focus of our equip um, classes that are aimed at, at helping uh, equip believers to, to understand God's word and how it applies to all of life. Eventually, our desire will, will be to offer what we we call equipped courses that that will be four to six weeks uh, focused on one of those types of topics, but allow us to dig further and deeper, perhaps using some resource along the way. The desire for us is ultimately to offer some type of equipped class like that on Sunday morning uh, in in our typical worship as we grow in our size and ability to uh, take care of uh, of kids and uh, set up and, and all of those things and so uh, but but this focus is ahead of us in this new year that we would drill down deep on discipleship and evangelism and then we see the second thing here in terms of the identity of the church is that the church is a pillar and buttress of the truth what Paul is saying here is we are guardians of the truth. That to be a pillar is, is this idea of strength and stability. Some of your translations may say foundation. Um, I'm 32, and when I say buttress, I still giggle a little bit. Um, it's been really hard for me up to this point. Um, but the idea is, is one of support. I saw it all in your eyes. I just needed to acknowledge it. Uh, the idea is, is one of support. The church doesn't create the truth, right? The church upholds the truth. 
The church is the guardian of the truth. We, we uphold the truth by holding firm to God's word. We continually come back to it. We're diligent to know it, defend it, measure our life and our practice, what we believe as well as how we live according to it. We're, we're instructed to, to hold firm so that we might pass it on from one generation to the next. This is our sacred calling as a church to hold firm to God's word. But not only do we hold firm to it, but we hold it high. We make it known. We don't just busy ourselves with knowing and defending God's word, but we make it known. We look to proclaim it. We must hold firm and hold high God's word in the face of an ever-changing culture. This is our calling as a church. This is our identity, the church of the living God, the church that's the pillar and the support, the foundation of the truth. Now, I've said this before, but we, within the American church particularly, uh, are so myopic. We, we see things only like what's right in front of us. And we feel like, man, the church has never been more in danger than it is right now. And there's so many things coming out of the church and the challenges are so great. Now, don't, don't hear me say that they're not, uh, because indeed they are. But, but think about what the church at Ephesus faced. The church at Ephesus faced materialism in their surrounding culture. I, I mentioned earlier the silversmiths who started a riot. Because the gospel was hurting their bottom line, right, of their business. They were driven by, by material gain, just as we see today. You can read in Acts 19 how the church at Ephesus was, was started in Paul's ministry there. They faced persecution. They were opposed because of the city's commitment to their other god. Uh, the, the temple of Artemis was at the, at the center of it. They had opposing beliefs all around them. Not only did, did Christianity have, have the opposing beliefs of, uh, of, of those within Judaism who didn't recognize Christ as the Messiah, but they had opposing beliefs of these false gods that were, were around them, that, that literally people would go to the temple to, uh, to worship. And here's, here's Paul calling the church to gather together. And he'll say um, and later on in, in, chapter, in chapter 4, when you gather together, commit yourself to the public reading of Scripture and to teaching and exhortation. So you got, you got a church that's got, in their surrounding city, all of these appealing things around them. Opposing beliefs and materialism and opportunity uh, to, to people to give their lives to things other than God. And God said through, his, through, through Paul to Timothy, hey, I want, I want the church at Ephesus to be committed to this. Talk about God's word. Read it when you gather. Teach from it. Exhort from it. Worship the living God. And watch how countercultural you'll be when you're called to be a people who belong to God. They had spirituality in Ephesus without the gospel, Gnosticism that we see the early evidence of it within the surrounding culture that would eventually elevate the spiritual over the physical, that has these great spiritual experiences, but say it doesn't matter how you live, do what your body, whatever you want. It's the very same reality that we face in our own culture today. Then there was also legalism, pressure to, to revert back uh, to Judaism, to defining their spiritual identity, not by, by Christ and, and the cross, but by, by religious practice and observance of holy days, etc. There was all of these pressures. And God is calling his people to hold firm and to hold high God's word. I think it... It should give us perspective that our challenges aren't so unique today that we have to buckle under their pressure as if 
Um, We've never seen something like this before. But it should also encourage us. This has been sufficient for the church for the last 2,000 years and, and for God's people for thousands more. That we are a people of God's word. We are guardians of the truth. Committed to holding firm and holding high God's word. And then finally in verse 16, we see not just the character of the church and the identity of the church, but the confession of the church. Paul says in verse 16, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. We confess, Paul says. This is the the common confession of the church. It's a short, memorable summary of some aspect of the Christian faith. This most likely was a hymn within the early church. When you think about what our confession is, our, our confession is a, is a banner uh, that we hold high, that, that waves over us as to what we believe and who we are. And, and ultimately, Paul's going to say that our confession is focused on Jesus. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Jesus is our banner. Particularly the the good news of great joy about Jesus is the banner that we wave over our lives. So we we say it this way at at TCC, that our banner is the gospel and our response to the gospel is to delight in, to declare, and to display. Not just sometimes, but in all of life. Not for ourselves, but for the good of our city. Paul says that what we confess is a mystery of godliness. Elsewhere, if you look in in Ephesians, Paul will talk about the mystery of of Christ. It's a, a reference not to some secret knowledge, but, but something that was not fully known in the past, but has now become fully known through Jesus. And, and what this mystery is, is a mystery of God's plan of redemption, that Christ would come and not just be a savior for Israel, but a savior for all people, that the Jew and the Gentile would be united together in Christ into one new person. This is the mystery. And the mystery of godliness, the word godliness is, as we mentioned earlier, it's talking about our our devotion to Christ. It's actually a word that uh, sometimes is used to talk about religion, uh, the idea of religion. It's speaking of our practice and our devotion. He calls this mystery of godliness, this mystery of God's plan of redemption that's working itself out in our lives. Our, Our confession is focused on Christ He says the mystery of faith is another way of of describing the gospel, the core of the Christian method of message, our unfolding plan of God's redemption. He says that this is the gospel motivated devotion of the Christian. This is what we confess. Here's what we proclaim. You could say it. There's kind of three different couplets, uh, but maybe we could just say it in these four ways. Paul says, here's our confession. Christ incarnate. He was manifested in the flesh. The God who made heaven and earth came in human flesh. In a moment in time, it's been said, he became what he wasn't, a man without ever ceasing to be what he was, God. That's why Isaiah would say that that one son born of a virgin would come who would be called Emmanuel. God with us. God had come in human flesh. God incarnate. Christ resurrected, vindicated by the Spirit and seen by angels. We, we see this language of vindication throughout uh, Jesus' life. It, it means being, being affirmed, being 
proven or demonstrated to be who he said he was and to have accomplished what he promised to accomplish. We see his vindication at his baptism when the the heavens open and the father affirms and says, this indeed is my beloved son. In the Mount of Transfiguration, once more, the father speaks from heaven and says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And then think about Romans 1, 1 through 4. Paul says that he's been set apart for the gospel. And this gospel, it was promised beforehand through the prophets and the scriptures. It was about his son, Jesus, who is descended from David, according to the flesh. And he was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. The the declaration to be the son of God is a declaration of vindication. When Jesus was raised by the Spirit, Jesus was vindicated and and it demonstrated that his death on the cross was sufficient to pay for the sins of mankind. And that he was indeed a pleasing sacrifice in the eyes of God the Father. And he was seen by angels, most likely an affirmation of, of his appearance and his resurrection and his ascension. Christ resurrected It doesn't mention Christ's death on the cross here, but it's in his resurrection that we see that the work of the cross can take effect in our lives. Were he just a dying God, we wouldn't be here worshiping. He's a resurrected God. Christ incarnate, Christ resurrected, Christ proclaimed. It says that he is proclaimed among the nations and believed on in the world. As Christ was resurrected, he told his disciples, we see this in Luke, he said that Christ, that it was written in the scriptures, Christ should suffer and on the third day rise, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Acts 1.8, this commission is given once more that we are to be God's witnesses. Starting from Jerusalem, proceeding out to Judea and Samaria, and ultimately to the ends of the earth. The proclamation of Christ. This is what's been happening from the moment that Christ was raised until the day. And it will happen until he returns again. And and look what happens when Christ is proclaimed. He is proclaimed among the nations and believed on in the world. Christ proclaimed. Christ believed upon. Do you believe that? When we proclaim Christ, people will believe. This is our confession. Oh, they'll never listen to me. Oh, you don't know what kind of questions they'll ask me. They don't want to hear this stuff. Nobody wants to talk about this. So we repeat in our minds. Perhaps it's true. Maybe they don't. But one thing I do know is when the gospel is proclaimed, people believe. This is our confession. Christ incarnate, Christ resurrected, Christ proclaimed, and finally, Christ exalted. Taken up in glory. This refers to his ascension. The glory which was veiled as Jesus walked the earth was now and is now fully on display as he sits at the right hand of the Father. And Jesus, when he was taken up into glory in Acts 1, the angel said, why do you stand here looking? Go do the work that he's called you and know that he will come again. He was taken up in glory and he will come again in glory to call us as his own. This is our confession. Here's what a confession should do for us as a church. Our confession should strengthen our faith. We believe Christ incarnate. 
Christ resurrected. Christ proclaimed. Christ exalted. This is what strengthens and sustains our faith. We're not, we're not making this up. This isn't our ideas. This isn't what we hope is true. This is what God says to us. And we gladly confess it and it strengthens us as his people. It strengthens us through the dry valleys. It strengthens us through the storms that come, through the, through the trials, whether, whether they be related to our faith or, or related to our journey in this world. They, they strengthen us when, when things are going well and remind us and, and ground us in, in what is true. And they, they uphold us when things are, are difficult, that, that this is what we cling to. Everything around me, if I looked at my circumstances and, and based my view on God on my circumstances, would lead me to a different belief. But because of what I confess, regardless of what happens to me, Christ incarnate, Christ resurrected, Christ proclaimed, Christ exalted. But also, when we think about our confession, our confession is an invitation to the world to come behold the wondrous mystery of Christ and what he has accomplished. Once more, Spurgeon, as he was thinking on this passage, he says, when I'm preaching the gospel, many may say, oh, he's only telling us commonplace truth. Just so I know that. And yet I feel within myself the wheeling up of God's great cannon, which will blow the gates of hell to pieces yet. This plain truth. Spurgeon said, will blow the gates of hell to pieces that God was made flesh and dwelt among us. That is God's great battering ram against which nothing can stand. Never lose heart in the gospel, my brethren. But think, think you hear the apostle calling across the ages what he says here in 1 Timothy 3.16. Great is the mystery of godliness. Look for nothing greater. The gospel is great enough. Keep to it. Never think you have told men times enough about it. Hold fast that you have received it. Attempt not to mend the truth. Venture not to shape it according to the fancy of the times, but proclaim it in all of its native purity. Bind it upon your heart. Wrap it about your loins in death and hold it as the standard in both your hands in life. This simple truth. Jesus Christ has come to seek and to save that which is lost. And that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Spurgeon said, this gospel, this confession, Christ incarnate, Christ resurrected, Christ proclaimed, Christ exalted. Let this be your jewel, your treasure, your life. Our band's going to come and lead us in a song. That's that very invitation to come and behold the wondrous mystery. The wondrous mystery that is Christ in all of his glory. And I just wanted to, to minister to us as we sing this morning. That it would strengthen us. Let this confession strengthen your faith this morning. And if you are here and you don't know Christ, let this confession, this invitation to come and behold the wondrous mystery, to be an invitation for you to put your trust in him. To believe on him. The Bible says if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. If we call out to him, recognizing our need, our sin, that we've gone our own way, but that Christ has offered forgiveness and new life, then we can have new life in him. As we worship, let this confession strengthen and invite you to consider Christ. Let's pray.